Okay, well, good morning and welcome to Sunday School. Let me pray and then we'll dive in. Our Father God, every day is a gift from above and so we thank you for this new day, another day of your patience and grace, uh, another day of our journeying uh, home uh, towards the, the final promised land. And so we pray now that you would feed us um, with um, good food for that journey. Pour your spirit upon us, refresh us, we pray. Uh, strengthen us in order that as we walk, we might be faithful pilgrimage, uh, pilgrims. Uh, we might increasingly look like the Lord who leads us. Bless us, we pray, therefore, in his name. Amen. Okay, well, welcome. great to see so many um, out. Welcome, particularly welcome if you're here for the first time. Um, it's great to have you with us. This is our, our Sunday school uh, class, as I, I hope you picked up. It's fairly informal. The way we do things is um, I'm going to do a bit of teaching from the front and there'll be some discussion around tables. Uh, we'll run for about 30, 40 minutes, then have a break, and then the service will be at half past 10. Um, so this is kind of more seminar style, I suppose. And we're beginning a new series thinking about gender. Okay, what, what does it mean to be male and female um, according to the scripture? So just to get us going and get the kind of cogs whirring a little bit, um, I put two questions on the top of your sheet there. Um, your son comes to you and says, Dad, what does it mean to be a boy? Okay, not, not what does it mean to be human, um, you know, not what is a gospel, what does it mean to be a boy particularly? Or, to send you the same question the other way around, if you're filling in the blank, according to God's word, to be feminine, to be female means, what would you fill in the gap? Just have a little chat around tables. Don't panic about trying to get the right answers. Part of this is trying to just help us see where we're at as we begin this series. So no worries if you sit there and think, do you know what? I haven't got a clue. Um, that's absolutely fine. Um, but think too about the third question there. What would our society say on the whole? How on the whole would society answer the question um, about what it means to be male and female? Over to you. Just three or four minutes to get the kind of brains whirring and we'll come back together in a moment okay um, doesn't matter kind of quite where you got to on that and I'm not going to ask for feedback just now um, I would imagine if we were to sort of <laughs> take the temperature around the room you get quite a lot of different answers um, certainly in terms of you know what, what does um, what does the bible teach um, so really this morning, what I want to do is, in a sense, spend quite a lot of time just kind of setting the scene. It's kind of like the goal for waggling on the tea uh, before we get into the meat of things next week. Um, so to start with, why, why are we doing this? Why this topic and why now? Um, three reasons. Firstly, it's centrality. It's the centrality of what it means to be male and female, the centrality of gender, um, both in scripture and in life. You don't have to have read much of the Bible or got far into your um, yearly Bible reading scheme, before we hit, God made man, in his image, male and female. Okay, it's right there on, on page one. And that sort of foundation, foundational passage uh, in Genesis 1 sets up not just the story of Scripture, where clearly we meet men and women who have different callings and do different things through the next however many thousand pages, but it's also foundation in our lives. Every day you exist, you inescapably exist as a man or a woman. There is no in-between. And so we're not just generic human beings. Now, we'll see in future weeks, there are, there are, there are senses 
in which um, we share a common humanity. Okay, there are some things that are, if you like, the same between men and women. But there are significant differences too. <coughs> and on this, um, uh, the, the way gender is introduced, so male and female, God made them, that we, we go pretty much straight into marriage and the beginning of family life. And family too is a building block. In fact, it's the building block uh, of humanity. And therefore the church. So understanding how families are meant to function is key to our discipleship. Now that doesn't mean, by the way, this series is just going to be about marriage or only applicable if you are married. Far from it. But, but at a time when in, culturally the family is kind of pushed to the side a little bit, it's being reinvented, the kind of biblical understanding of what a family is is really more or less gone in terms of society's understanding, then putting gender and family back in their rightful place uh, is tremendously important. And that leads me to the second reason why I want to do this series now. It's not just central in scripture, but it, cl- clearly increasingly that the Bible's view of what it means to be human and what it means to be male and female uh, is being condemned in culture. I don't speak about this too much, but with the rise of transgenderism, uh, with the rise of all sorts of different sort of ideologies over the 20th century, there has been a strong push to say that more or less the two sexes are interchangeable. It just doesn't really make any difference whether you're male or female. In fact, ultimately, it could even be up to you to choose whether you're male or female. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on transgenderism uh, in this little series. We might touch on it. But, but even if we haven't gone to that extreme, it is incredibly likely, if you, I, now I can only speak about basically England here or probably the UK, but it's incredibly likely if you've grown up in that culture in the last 50 years, you've grown up in a culture that more or less says it doesn't matter or make any significant difference whether you're male or female. So to take one of this obvious example, think about our education system. Are boys and girls educated in any different ways? Well, recently, not at all. I don't know how far you'd have to go back before there was some differences, but certainly in my lifetime, not at all. Interesting, isn't it? Is it right? Is it wrong? We'll come to it. So, centrality in scripture, condemnation in the culture, and just confusion in the church. It is not something that's taught about that often. You know that if you went around even just half a dozen churches in Leeds, you'd get all sorts of different answers from all sorts of different people. And so it's not surprising uh, that it's a subject on which you often find Christians are not very clear. Many of you are young, and now is a good stage of life to get these sort of things sorted before you head off into career, family, marriage, and all that sort of thing. Uh, in that sense, um, it's, it's a subject I, I suppose I felt that I just needed to teach on. Um, I look back over the last sort of 15 or so years of my, my ministry, and it's not something I've taught on very much. Um, there are some subjects that just that don't massively need addressing. Okay, so I don't feel the particular need to do a Sunday school series on, um, on slave trading and why it's wrong. Because I am 100% sure that everybody in this room thinks slave trading is wrong. Right, rightly. Okay, it's somewhere where our culture and the church just agree. But gender, perhaps not so much. Now, we do need to be aware of stereotypes, obviously. Um, so here's an example I read recently. See what you make of this. Church plant, not much older than ours. Asked uh, a more experienced, so it's a younger minister planting it. Didn't have elders yet. <coughs> Excuse me. Asked a more experienced minister. Um, or more, more experienced minister basically gave them a sort of consultation. 
you know, what, what do you need to do? You're young. I don't know how old exactly they were, but so, sort of like us. Um, what do you need to do? And the, the minister wrote, the older guy wrote back with various bits of advice. You know, it's good to get elders, all that sort of stuff. Um, but one thing he said was women's ministry. Okay, this older man was saying, look, women's ministry. You've got a lot of young women in the church. You've got to, got to, you know, you've got to do something for them. And so the question was, okay, well, what? I get that. What, what? What do we do? Um, he said three priorities. Okay, and just, just, what do you think of this? Three priorities for the young women. Teach them, one, how to submit to their husbands. Two, how to work at home. Okay, care for the home. And thirdly, how to love their husbands and look after their children. Now, there's some character stuff as well, but that, that were the three priorities. What, do you, what would you think of that older minister? Okay, don't answer out loud, but what do you think if that was the consultation at our church? I expect for, for, for quite a few of us at least, our heckles just begin to rise a little bit. Why are you assuming that it's all about marriage? Okay, why are you teaching about children? What on earth do you mean caring for the home? How patronising is that? And yet, and yet that is Titus 2. Paul writing to Titus. Young church plant, not established. Paul saying, look, this is what you need to get sorted out. You need to get elders in place. And then in Titus 2, he addresses different segments of the congregation. Older women, younger women, older men, younger men. And I think it's really striking. Those are the things he says. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, that's not me making things up. That is straight out of Titus 2, the three things he wants to teach. Now, culturally, that is a grenade, is it not? If you went to school and said that, you know, if a minister, you know, sometimes you get invited into assemblies. Girls, I'd love to teach you as you grow up how to love your husbands, how to submit to your husbands, how to look after your children and work at home, you know, care for the home. You would not be going back in to do a second assembly, I can tell you that. Now, look, we're going to look at that passage later, okay, and, and there's you know, more we can say than just that. But even the fact that those sort of passages, I suspect, hit us. Oof. means there might be a disjunct between kind of how we've just grown up, the air we've breathed, and the kind of air that was being breathed out uh, in the early church. Uh, that does also mean that I'm slightly cautious about this, this series. Um, it's very easy to get misheard, so we need to be patient and gracious with one another. Um, and sometimes it might be that... that, that as you hear me teaching or other people discussing on the table, you are hearing kind of consequences that perhaps aren't intended. So we need to go slowly and patiently and carefully and talk things out, basically, not jump to too many uh, conclusions. Um, I sent a link around, uh, an article around to Peter and Matt earlier in the week, um, which I, I found really helpful, uh, from a guy called Aaron Wren. It wasn't on gender at all, but it was about... Um, it's about where we're at as a society. I don't know who this guy is, actually. He's American. He was talking about America. But he has some, I thought, really helpful basic analysis of uh, the culture we live in. And his analysis was this. Up until about 1990. It's America, so, you know, adjust the dates accordingly. But up until about 1990, he said, we lived in a positive culture, a culture that was positive towards Christianity. So if you wanted to be elected president, you need to be a Christian, at least outwardly. If you're a Christian businessman, that was a good thing. So it was a positive culture. He then reckoned from 1990 to about 2014, uh, we lived in a neutral country, a uh, neutral culture. 
where it wasn't really an advantage to be a Christian, but it wasn't a disadvantage. And then from about, he puts it at 2014, which is the kind of same-sex marriage laws coming in in America. You might want to shove it back a bit in England, but either way, we now live in even a negative culture. It's not just a bit funny to be a Christian, your niche interest. Increasingly, it is going to be positively evil for you to think like Jesus thinks, to believe what the Bible says. I think that's very savvy. It's, it's sobering, isn't it? But, but Jesus' words um, uh, that, that all men will hate you, I think increasingly are going to come true in, in our society. We've been protected from that for, for a long time, really. But particularly, unfortunately, we, you don't get to pick the areas. Okay? We don't get to pick whether it's the resurrection or the cross. So unfortunately, it's going to be sexuality, marriage, gender. These are things that are going to, are going to very likely make us dislike and actually thought of as bad people for following Christ. So again, um, it's one of the reasons I think we have to address it, not duck it and try and hide, but see what the scripture has to say. So, um, I'm aware that sounds sort of somewhat negative, or, uh, but actually, I, what I hope is the next few weeks will be really positive. How are we going to do this? Second section on your oil sheet. How are we going to do this? Clearly, we're going to be swimming against the tide. We've talked about that already. Uh, we know these topics can raise the temperature. So we need to go in with clear commitments, primarily, of course, the gospel. Okay, we go in as saved sinners. We're all messes in all sorts of ways. God's grace is greater than our mess. So it doesn't matter what we've done, what we are doing. Um, there is always forgiveness. And we need to be patient with one another. Two things in particular. We need to remember we're, we're clouded. So scripture, the Bible, needs to be our final authority. Our minds don't think clearly. Okay, you know this, don't you? It's not as if... You open the Bible, you read something, you understand it straight away, and you just go and do it. Okay? If, if discipleship was that easy, all you'd have to do is read through the whole Bible once, and boom, you'd be perfect. But it's not. Okay, the sin that remains doesn't just make us do bad things. It, it, it confuses us. We, we, we don't understand. I put a verse down there, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Uh, the Bible is breathed out by God. It is literally spirited out by God, the same kind of term. And so we have to let the, the book on your table be the ultimate authority. Uh, we should expect to be corrected, okay, reproved. No, you're going the wrong direction, you need to turn around. Oh, we don't like it, obviously. But in this area of, of gender and family and all that sort of there's a strong temptation to want to make the authority, not the, the scriptures, but actually my experience, or perhaps my family. Okay, there's a right desire to honour family, so perhaps I've been brought up a particular way, and it's going to be very painful if it seems that how I was brought up and how the Bible speaks are, are different. We might just acknowledge that, mightn't we? That is difficult, it's painful. And so the temptation is to make my experience, my family experience... Um, what I was taught at school, whatever else, you know, that authoritative uh, above the Bible. Um, obviously, I'm clouded too, okay, so I'm not going to get everything right. Um, so that's why, you know, this is discussion and come back and chat and all the rest of it. But ultimately, let's commit to seeing what the scripture says and going from there, building up our, our, um, our answers on there not just what seems right to us. We're, conf- we're clouded, so scripture, but we're also created. 
And that means natural law has its place. This might be slightly newer. Um, natural law is, is it's a theological term, but it's, it's just a summary of uh, um, some biblical teaching. Natural law is, is the good and right way of living that's woven into all people inescapably by God. Okay, so we're not talking about the Bible here. We're not talking about special revelation. We're talking about the category of general revelation. Okay, this, the revelation that God gives to all people everywhere. Think of the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God, or Romans 1. What can we know about God is, is clear in creation. And natural law is a subset of that. And it's the kind of the way we're meant to live as human beings that is woven into us. Again, I put some Bible verses down. Uh, Romans 2. Uh, when Gentiles who do not have the laws, so they don't have the Bible, they haven't got the Ten Commandments, they haven't got the Old Testament. Paul says, when Gentiles who don't have the Bible, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. See what he's saying there? He's saying that they, the, the, the Gentiles, people who've got no contact with the scriptures, they know right and wrong at a basic level. You don't need the Bible to tell you not to murder. It's just woven into us. You don't need the Bible to tell you not to steal or commit adultery or lie. There are some things that are just imprinted on our hearts as men and, and women, just as human beings. Uh, if you've got a Bible on the table, come, come into Romans 1. Romans 1. Romans 1 and 2 are kind of foundational for this idea of there being this natural law. So verse 19 of Romans 1. Oh, verse, uh, verse 18, sorry. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Not don't know it, suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Now Paul's talking about all men here, not Christians or Jews or all people. What you can know about God is obvious to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honour him or give thanks to him. So did you see the, the, the press? That everybody knows God. Everybody. Richard Dawkins, the most committed atheist you've ever met, they all know God. But suppress the truth. Not ignorant of it, suppress it. We don't want him. We don't want to give thanks, we don't want to worship, so we suppress the truth by pushing a beach ball under the, the water in the swimming pool, and it's always trying to pop up, but we try and keep it down there. And this come out in our, comes out in our actions. Uh, because of this idolatry, verse 24, God gives us up. And in verse 26, an example of the, when God hands us over just to follow our sinful nature, what happens? Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations uh, with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Do you see? So he's talking about same-sex sex sex there. Homosexual sex, whether it's female, female, male, male. See how they're described? It's not as these are contrary to the Bible. I mean, they obviously are contrary to the Bible. But it's contrary to nature. These people don't know anything about the Bible. No one's given them a Bible. I haven't got an Old Testament. I haven't got the Leviticus or Exodus. Or... And yet these sins are contrary to nature. Some things are just there in nature. 
And interestingly, in, in one of the passages, again, we'll look at it in much more detail in future weeks, which is speaking about um, men and women in church and all sorts of issues we're definitely not getting into now. But just look at this as a verse, 1 Corinthians 11. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears his hair long, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's his glory. I know that throws up all the like, What? How long? Is, is that sort of... Is that sort of but just, just for now, do you see his basic point? What is it that teaches you that? Nature. Okay, not, not, not scripture, nature. Now, this is slippery, more slippery than the Bible because we're clouded and so we can, we can read it wrong. But we, we mustn't deny this, this natural law because Paul uses it. And there's all sorts of other passages we could have looked at. I just picked two or three as a kind of quick highlight. Obviously, we can't just baptise one culture and say, hey, look, um, because in England this is what happens, therefore nature tells us this is how things should work. You can't baptise one culture. But it probably does mean that we are likely to be able to learn things by looking at the sort of broad patterns of humanity across cultures and across time. There's always going to be outliers, but likely there will be messages coming through that. So, for example you are going to struggle to find many societies across the world and across time who thought that it's a good idea for the men to stay at home and send the women into battle. Or another example. Okay, if... Um, so if I turned up at church this morning to lead the service, okay, um, wearing a dress and pink lipstick and I'd done my hair up in a little ponytail and was wearing high heels, could you give me a Bible verse that says, John, you can't do that? No. Maybe one in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, maybe. But... Would it have been wrong? Yeah. Okay. Now, you might not like my fashion sense in general. That's fine. But I, that's not my point. But basically, I am dressed today like a man. Okay. okay. And you know that. And again, I know there are blurrings of lines okay, at points. You know, it's not, I'm not saying it's clear-cut. I can now write a list on the, you know, the whiteboard of man, woman, yes, no. But you get the point. There is just a natural difference between the genders. So, it's quite a lot of waggling the tea. Let's just begin to dip our toe in the water. What are we talking about? Uh, let's try and set out some of the, kind of, the territory we're heading into um, you should have to have some vocab, some terms I'm going to use over the ne- next few weeks. Um, traditionally, if we were doing this seminar 20 years ago, um, the debate would be between two groups broadly within the kind of Bible-believing church, egalitarianism and complementarianism, as they're called. Uh, now, they're modern terms, so you can take them or leave them. I'm not particularly wedded to them. It's just useful to have some sort of shorthand. Um, it's a bit like, these terms are a bit like the word evangelical. You know, I don't know if you've got non-Christian friends. You've said, oh, are you one of those evangelical Christians? And you're never quite sure what to say. On the one hand, I would say, yeah, if you mean believe the gospel, the evangel, which is Greek for gospel, and Jesus died, I'm definitely one of those. But when they're like, you know, those evangelical Christians, like the guys on TV in America who hold up the snakes and you send them money and they bless you, you're like, no, 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 I'm not one of those. Um, so it's the same with these words, like, are you a complementarian? Well, yes, or it depends what you mean. Anyway, that aside, here are some rough definitions. An egalitarian position is one that says that while men and women, of course, differ, they obviously physically we're different, there are no real differences in what each can do or are allowed to do. So most significantly, when it comes to church leadership, 
Um, there's no reason why a man and a woman can't do any role in church. And when it comes to, to marriage, the idea of the, the, the man being the head of the marriage is one that an egalitarian would reject, at least in the, in the sense that it carried any kind of authority in that headship. On the other hand, there's what's been known as complementarian uh, position. The complementarian position, complement, as in they go together, rather than complement, as in aren't you lovely? So complement, go together. Uh, complementarianism would teach that men and women are equal in value, but differ in the complementary roles that God has given them. Um, at the very least, in marriage and the church. Okay, so typically, the elder role is, is male, a complementarian would say, and the husband is to lead the marriage. And possibly more than that, but that's for another time. Now, interestingly, I said that if we were doing this seminar 20 years ago, in- increasingly, those who were pushing hard, at least in the kind of 80s, 90s, um, pushing hard for the egalitarian position, at least in the West, increasingly, to be honest, they've, they've left that, or rather they take, kept that and got even further, and have now kind of pro-same-sex marriage, all that sort of stuff. Now, that's not, that's not always the case, okay? So we don't want to start tarring people with, with a brush unfairly. There are some people who, you know, are still very clear on matters of sexuality, but, but have shifted, uh, but sorry, but are pro, say, women ministers. But there is a link between the two. Okay, you can sort of see it, can't you? If you start saying, do you know what? It, there's no real difference, other than a bit of biology, there's no real differences between the genders. So there's no reason why you know, a man and a woman couldn't do exactly the same thing. You can see why if you keep pushing that kind of understanding a little bit, you're eventually saying, well, if it doesn't really matter which one you are, then why would it matter which one you marry? So there is a kind of link there. But anyway, complementarian and egalitarian are, sort of, I suppose, broadly speaking, two big-picture approaches to this whole subject. And it probably isn't going to surprise you. I want to, I want to argue, and I think the Bible teaches much more significantly than me arguing for it, I think the Bible teaches a complementarian position. Uh, let's go right back to Genesis 1. Right back to Genesis 1. And as the, not just the Bible, but the universe begins, God creates the heavens and the earth. And you see in verse 2, there's a, there's a problem. Um, God has created the heavens and the earth, but the earth is without form and empty, void. Two problems, in fact. It's formless and empty. And so what you see over the next six days of creation is that in the first three days, God forms what is formless. And then in days four, five, six, he goes back to the different zones he's formed and fills them. So the two problems of being shapeless and empty are solved in days one to three and then four to six. And the whole thing, I'd suggest to you, is complementary. It's all about pairs coming together. So uh, day one, verse three. Uh, God said that there'd be light and there was light. God saw the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness night. And that's the first day. Okay. So darkness and light, night and day, are separated. Two things, which is better? Well, neither. They just go together, don't they? That's the whole point. Day two, which is verse six to eight, what does he do? He separates the waters above from the waters below. Okay, so imagine at the moment the whole earth is just as a watery mass, and then essentially you've got the, kind of the sky up there. Uh, the sky and the, and the earth, which is better? It's not better. 
It's just, they're just different. They complement each other. Day three, he turns to the, to the, to the land, to get the, the globe, which is watery ball, and separates out the land from the seas. Which is better, land or sea? Again, just stop asking stupid questions. <laughs> they are complementary. See how everything's in pairs. And actually, you know, whether the pairs light and darkness, or sun and moon, or night and day, or land and sea, or heavens above and earth below, it's often the interaction of the two that brings life and blessing. Okay, imagine if there was no, no, um, no waters above, okay, just land. I don't know how you'd imagine that, but just, just land. No air and rain, all that stuff, just land. It's not going to bring life, is it? Okay. For the crops to grow, you need the two to interact. Day and night, in order to keep us sort of alive, rest and awakeness, all the rest of it. So it's as the two interact in a complementary sense that life and blessing comes. That's no surprise, actually, because the whole, the whole show, ultimately, is about the, the, the bringing together of two different, um, two different beings, God and his people, in a great union in Christ. So everything is a picture of two becoming one. But if you get rid of the two-ness, you get rid of the distinction, you get rid of the union. You can't unite you know, two things that are already the same, or if there's just only one thing to start with. Do you see, you need difference in order to reflect a union, a bringing together ultimately of God and his people, Christ and his church. And so it's not surprising, therefore, that at the end of chapter one, when we get to the making of man, having seen all these complementary pairs... What do we read? Verse 27. God created man in his own image. Okay, that's mankind in that sense. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Humanity itself is a pair, even within itself. Male and female. That are complementary. No one is better or worse. No more than the sky and the land or the sea and the shore. But they are distinct and different in some senses, and it is their union that is going to bring life and blessing. Not as each tries to turn itself into the other, but as each plays the role in creation that they were given. And so it's even less of a surprise when we get to Ephesians, I put the verse on your sheet, I think, that when Paul kind of preaches on this passage, Ephesians 5, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, this is talking about marriage, sorry, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a verse from Genesis. Okay, the two becoming one. Male and female becoming one in marriage. And what does Paul say it's about? This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Complementarity is woven into creation in a far broader sense than just men and women. But all of it ultimately points to the fact that God in Christ is going to become one with his church. Therefore, trying to erase the distinctions is going to blur the gospel. It's not just a little kind of fight down here in the corner about, I don't know, one of the ridiculous stereotypes you want to do, kind of who chooses what colour to paint the walls in your house if you're married or something. It, it, the whole thing is a pattern, a picture, a pointing towards what God's going to do in the gospel. So, just as we finish, one last little thought. A further distinction. This is very rough and ready. Uh, what you'll find, okay, even within the kind of 
um, those who would say I'm a complementarian, I think I think it, I think God does call men to lead marriages and lead the church. You'll find that I've called them thick and thin um, because I'm thick uh, in this understanding. Thin complementarians would say, look, the Bible, yeah, of course it teaches that, that men and women, sorry, men lead marriages and, uh, and lead the church. That's just undeniable because there's a bunch of passages that say it. But after that, all bets off. It doesn't really matter after that. Okay, there aren't really consequences for wider life. Thick complementarians, or broad if you like, would say the same thing about marriage and church, but also say, look, there, there are broader patterns that are going to work their way out into wider life. And therefore, that the, 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 there are reasons why God has said men in church leadership and leading marriages. It's not kind of an arbitrary cost of toil in which way it's going to come down. I've got two totally um, equal, interchangeable genders, but I'm going to make one of them. Uh, which one is it? Oh, it's going to be men. No, it's all woven into the, the way we are created in, in, in being male and female. Um, I... I in this series, at different points, not everything we do, but at different points, I, I want to argue that the Bible does present that thicker, broader, complementarian um, position. Most importantly, because I think it's what Scripture teaches. But also because I think if you go for that really narrow position that is just about marriage and, and, and eldership, your answer to those questions we began with are basically just negative. So when your daughter comes to you and says, what does it mean to be a woman, Daddy? You have to say, well, it doesn't mean anything different from what it means to be a boy but there are two things you're not allowed to do. That's it. It's just, it's just a negative thing. Okay? It's, just, it's just be a Christian like any other human being, but two things are offside. Why are they offside? Well, because God said so. All right, why? Well, it just does. Whereas if you see there's more richness and colour to the Bible's understanding of gender, then actually you see a lot more, um, just a, more, a lot more life and the whole picture starts to make a lot more sense. Um, I like um, Kevin DeYoung I meant to bring the book along Kevin DeYoung's got I think a really helpful book on this it's called Men, Women in the Church about 100, 120 pages very easy to read he's got an illustration I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to anglicise it because it's, it's all American but um, imagine you've got two balls okay so f- first, first scenario you've got two footballs and one's for playing with inside in the house and one's for playing with outside in the mud and you want to keep one clean so, and you know want to, to use inside so it can get the, wall, the walls muddy you can arbitrarily pick which one's which, can't you? Okay? Just use the red one outside and the blue one inside. There's no difference in the balls. They're both exactly the same, more or less. It's just that, fairly arbitrarily, I'm going to decide one's going to be the outside one and one's going to be the inside one. On the other hand, imagine you had a rugby ball and a football. Well, there are still similarities. They're both full of air. They're both made of plastic and leather, whatever. You've got to pump them up. They're both for sports. There's lots of similarities. But they are also different in their shape. So if you try and use the rugby ball to play football kind of can work no one's saying you can't do it or it's literally impossible for it to happen but it's not going to work very well it's not the way it was designed to be you're trying to use a, a, a football to, to play rugby it's just not doesn't work quite as well it's not and the point of De Young's illustration which I think is a helpful one is that, that men and women are designed you know if you like as the rugby ball and the football I think it's an American football and a soccer ball or whatever he calls it but of course huge similarities and certainly equal in value and we're going to come to all that but, when, but, but, but the, the reason that at times in, in the Bible you hit these passages that suddenly seem to say, oh, by the way, this is a male-only zone or whatever, is, is not because God has suddenly arbitrarily decided, oh, I need to choose, but it's woven into the way we were created right from the beginning. That means 
that there's loads of positive things we can say from scripture about what it means to be female and male that aren't restricted to just some fights about whether you can lead a church. There's much more positive, fruitful paths to explore, which is what I want to do uh, in the next few weeks. So there we go. That's a lot of waggling on the tea um, this morning, and uh, we'll have more discussion in future weeks. Just for a couple of minutes, um, as we close, why don't you do one minute on that? Who or what has most shaped your views of what it means to be a man or woman? And then we'll wrap up. Sorry, we've got on too long. Um, we better wrap up just so we can get the room turned around. Let me pray, and we'll get sorted. Lord God, we pray for humble spirits before your word, not uh, trying to trample over it, uh, not trying to extend it beyond what you've said, uh, but humbly listening to all you've said in your word and in your world. Uh, Bless us and shape us, we pray, therefore, uh, to be godly men and women uh, in all the callings you've given us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.